I want to talk to you about uh, something that's a big deal in Scripture that, that a crowd of folks were trying to make a little deal out of, and that's marriage. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to stand. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to read just verse 5. And after I read verse time, we'll pray. And then we'll look at this verse within the context of verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Folks, that's a royal wedding. As we talk about royal living in a needy world, marriage is perhaps the best and yet most challenging place to model that. Father, we ask You, by Your Spirit, not only to give us understanding of this text, which we desperately need, but the empowerment to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, where were you on Friday, April 29, 2011? Friday, April 29, 2011. Bright and early in the morning. I'll tell you where I was bright and early in the morning on Friday, April 29, 2011. I was in bed. <laughs> I was in bed. I had no reason to get up early. We happened to be at uh, my uh, mother-in-law's home when the rest of the girls all decided to get up really early that morning. I don't know if they had tea and crumpets or what, but I know there was a royal wedding on television that morning very early. The reason I don't know what all they had that morning is because I was asleep. But uh, Tina and Karis and uh, uh, their aunts and cousins, uh, all the girls, got up early to see Will and Kate get married. It was a big deal. The world's eyes were on at this wedding, and, and the world's eyes have continued to follow this marriage because something is intriguing, something is inviting, something is even mystical about a royal wedding. Church, I want you to understand that every Christ follower who gets married is involved in a royal wedding. And it's a wedding where the world should be able to take notice. The Pharisees in chapter 19 are trying to trap Jesus on a controversial issue, basically because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, Moses had talked about a certificate of divorce that could be made available when certain marriages wouldn't work out, but the problem was understanding and interpreting what it meant for things not to be working out. And so the Pharisees, who wanted to stay glued to the letter of the law, often failed to look beyond to see the purpose for which God had established certain things. The Pharisees were making a, a big deal out of the little issues, and every marriage faces little issues. <laughs> And big ones. But they wanted to make a big deal out of little issues. Jesus pointed out that they were making a little deal out of the big issues, the most important issues when it came to marriage. And that was something that even today we say is pharisaical. The Pharisees would strain out a gnat, but they would swallow a camel. And so Jesus is pointing out that even though there's lots of questions about marriage, there are some answers that they need to understand. Why would we want to get married anyway? That question comes up. Why define marriage so strictly? Or in certain seasons of life, 
why would I want to stay married in this situation? Why would I want to fight for my marriage? Watch if we could summarize all of these questions and the confrontations and, and the way the Pharisees would handle the Word of God. We might ask this question, what's the big deal about marriage anyway? And I can promise you that's where our culture is coming to in the times in which we live. They're saying, you know, what's the big deal about marriage anyway? Why do we need to define it so strictly? Why do we need to fight for it? Why is it about marriage that's such a big deal? And in answering this, Jesus provides us with a purpose and a permanence and a privilege of marriage. And we're going to break that down a little bit this morning by looking at these verses. First of all, in answering that question, what is the big deal about marriage? What's so royal? What's so awesome about marriage? He gives us the purpose of marriage beginning in verse 4. He says, haven't you read, Jesus here speaking, He said that He who created them in the beginning made them male and female. So Jesus goes back to Genesis, if you will. He kind of trumped the law of Moses that was given later, and even though the, the law of Moses was inspired, <laughs> Scripture as it was recorded, there was a purpose, there was a foundation, and Jesus says, let's go back all the way to the beginning where God created them, male and female, talking about God made men and women different, praise the Lord, that's absolutely part of God's plan. There's a difference between men and women, and there's a reason that marriage is between a man and a woman. We shouldn't have to say that these days, but that's what we have to be sure we remind people of. And I know that some people will come to you and say, yeah, but what about certain feelings? What about certain predispositions? What about certain desires that people can't help? Listen, if everything was permissible because we had an inward desire to crave something, then that would justify all kinds of things and all kinds of simple behaviors. But God created them male and female for a reason. It was going to reflect something, and we'll talk about that in a second. Now, Jesus is explaining here there was a perfect will of God from the beginning. Sometimes we refer to the perfect will and the permissive will. But as believers, we should say, let's stick with plan A. What was the perfect will of God? And so verse 5, he says, for this reason, now he's quoting Genesis chapter 24. For this reason, he's giving some purpose. He's going back to Genesis, back to when God created the first marriage, when God created a man and God created a woman, and united them there in the Garden of Eden. He's, he spells out this purpose. He explains the purpose of marriage. So we have to consider this verse in its original context. You think about the original context preceding these verses in Genesis chapter 2. When we go to verse 18, it says... It's not good for man to be alone. And can some men say amen to that? Amen. Now, I realize there are times in life where you say, hey, isn't there a proverb that says something about it's better to be on the corner of a roof than in the house with a contentious woman? Yeah, she needs a break from you every now and then too. So before, before you point out that we, you, know, you, you need those breaks and you need those breathers, remember that it was God's plan for companionship. One of the first purposes for marriage is that God would bring a companion of the, for, for men, a, a companion of the fairer sex, bring a woman into your life for companionship. Not good that man would be alone. See, Adam had seen all of these other animals. There were two of every kind, male and female, and there wasn't one suitable for him. So God 
would make him a helpmate. We need companionship. And then he would tell them, if you really go back into Genesis chapter 1, where it says he made male and female in his own image, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And so the, the next word we might think of is reproduction. It was God's desire from the beginning that children be brought in this world in the context of a family with a mom and a dad bringing children into the world. And when you apply these two areas, and you look at what Ephesians 5 says about intimacy in the relationship and the purity and all that goes on in that context, we see that marriage is a covenant to portray the covenant. Big C, covenant. Marriage is a covenant to portray the covenant. We might put it this way, marriage is a little picture of the big picture. In the Old Covenant, God's covenant, Old Testament, the word testament just means covenant, the Old Covenant is a covenant relationship between God the Father and Israel. Israel is referred to again and again as the bride of God. And so marriage in the Old Covenant was a picture of God's love for Israel and Israel's love for God. In the New Covenant, the church is in the covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. On your wedding day, a lot of folks do this. I remember when, before we converted our old sanctuary into a kid's center, sometimes the men would go back, there was kind of a closet, and really, I don't know why we did this, it's small, cramped space. Any of you ever stand in that closet, men waiting, on, waiting to get married? All right, I see Chris raising his hand back there. I was standing back there with one gentleman one time, and I said, the worst thing to do on your wedding day is come out of the closet. But we're standing back there, and we're in that closet, and, and, and so the pastor walks out, and he stands up here, and this bridegroom walks, and he stands, and it's a picture of the rapture of the church, when the bride comes through, they're already betrothed, they're already committed for this wedding day, but the bride comes and it's a picture of the rapture of the church when God will one day allow His Son to step out on the clouds of glory and call His bride home and the church and the bridegroom will be consummated together for all eternity. That's what our wedding is supposed to be a picture of. That's what marriage is supposed to be a picture of, the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. So we're told in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives are told to submit unto their husbands as unto the Lord. It's all a picture of the relationship, the covenant relationship between Christ and His church. Nowadays, I realize a lot of women don't like that word submit, but listen, men, if you will love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, it'll be an easy thing for her to do is to respect you and to walk with you in that kind of harmony and that kind of partnership. And so... You see that beautiful picture, a little picture of the big picture. You go back to this verse and he describes, he says, if you want to really picture this right, there's got to be a leaving time. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. It's a time that he has to man up and, and grow up and step out and be independent. Uh, it's been said this way before, you have to become independent before you become interdependent. <laughs> You've got to be able to kind of stand on your own two feet so he'll leave his father and mother. I think spiritually that means he's going to close the door on the past. He's not just one of the guys anymore when he gets married. He is God's man for one woman. Not just one of the guys. And she's not just one of the girls anymore. 
She is God's woman for this man. So it's like that situation where the the girl's having a hard time. She's a newlywed and and she's getting frustrated and and she's getting to where her husband's her, her new husband, he's trying to figure it all out and he's kind of getting on her nerves and, and she calls her dad and she's crying and she says, Daddy, I'm coming home. And he just says, Baby, you are home. <laughs> you have closed the door on the past. There's a leaving of father and mother. One of the biggest problems in marriage counseling today is where either the bride or the groom hasn't left. They're still listening to, so much to, to mom and dad and the way they did everything that they're not standing on their own together as a, a new family for God's glory. There's got to be a leaving. And second, there's got to be a cleaving in this, this purpose of marriage. He says, not only leave father and mother, but be joined to his wife. Some translations say, and cleave unto his wife. The Greek word had to do with something being stuck together like glue. It was to never come apart. It's a picture of the conjugal relationship, but it's also a picture of the commitment. And so that's why we speak of marriage as a covenant. Not a contract, a covenant. It is binding one man, one woman for life. There's a leaving, there's a cleaving, and then there's a weaving. The two become one flesh. Their lives are interwoven one with another. Again, there are conjugal connotations there of the honeymoon, but it goes much further than that as their lives become so intertwined that sometimes they even start looking alike, acting alike, talking alike. They don't lose their independence and individuality in every way, but they can't imagine their lives without the other. There's a oneness there. Next weekend, we're going to spend a lot of time around here emphasizing marriage oneness. And if I can add something to this verse, it's not in this text, but it's in so much of the New Testament. There's a leaving, there's a cleaving, there's a weaving, but there's also a receiving. Because when we go back to Genesis and we read the whole story, Adam and Eve, they've got it all together there in the garden, right? Chapter 3 of Genesis, what happens? Sin enters the world. Sin enters into the world and it could have totally destroyed marriage forever and ever. But God covers the sin with the skin of an animal. Blood is shed for the first time in the Garden of Eden to cover Adam and Eve's sin. A picture, a foreshadowing, if you will, of the fact that Jesus Christ would one day go to a cross for our sins. And it reminds us in the context of a covenant relationship that we will never have to forgive one another for anything more than God has already forgiven us. Ephesians 4.32 should be a key verse in every marriage. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. There needs to be a leaving, there needs to be a cleaving, there needs to be a weaving, but there's got to be a receiving. Because if you thought that person was perfect when you got married, it didn't take you long to figure out they weren't. And they're going to let you down. And when they do, you have to remember that Jesus Christ is the only one who will never let you down. And that He is the source of your strength. And He is the hope for your marriage. And you're going to again and again and again learn how to do what they just sang about. Be broken together. And let the grace of God come in and bring the healing through the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Hosea had to illustrate that, didn't he? God goes to Hosea and He says, I want you to marry Gomer, a prostitute. She is unfaithful to Hosea sells herself again into the sex slave trade. And what happens? 
But God tells Hosea, you go get her. When He finds her, He buys her back. Redemption. He redeems her. He buys her back. He cleanses her again. And that marriage is restored because God said, Hosea, I want your marriage to be a picture of my covenant love with Israel. So that means for all of us, whatever our marriage goes through, it's going to give us opportunities to show how awesome, how wonderful, how powerful God's love is. And here's one of the wonderful things about marriage, and I was telling a young man this just recently, one of the wonderful things about marriage is you get to fall in love again and again and again because of that. When you say, you know, just like we backslide on our relationship with God, we let the embers grow cold in our marriage, you fall in love all over again with that wife of your youth. So from the beginning, God is depending on strong marriages, even more so than a strong Israel, even more so than a strong church. He's depending on strong marriages for a dramatic impact for His glory on the world to reflect His glory. And when you make those vows before God, Jesus is saying, it is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Until you understand the purpose, and you're ready for the pursuit of that purpose, don't play games. A lot of the American adolescent dating scene is simply playing games. Playing games. A, a youth speaker by the name of Fran Shaka said this. He said, he said, boys will play at love, which they know nothing about, in order to get what they really want. and That is physical affection. And then it will say, girls will play at physical affection, which they aren't ready for, to get what they really want, which is love. Do you understand the purpose of the pursuit? Jesus saying, don't play games with marriage. Let's move from the purpose to the permanence of marriage. There's a permanence of marriage that is expected. It's expected. Look at verse 6 in this text. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate, especially those who are married in the context of invoking God's blessings before the body of Christ. He's saying, don't be married in the eyes of God and then go down to the courthouse and let man dissolve what you've put together by the grace of God and what God has joined together. Let no man separate. Verses 7 and 8, he kind of addresses their further questions. Why then, they asked, did Moses command us to give a divorce papers, give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not that way, not like that from the beginning. From the beginning, it was to be a little picture of the big picture, a covenant relationship. So verse 9, he deals with the problem. He says, and I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality meaning she has already dissolved the covenant through sexual immorality. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, by the way, that could be the man who's guilty of the same action. And then marries another, commits adultery. Matthew chapter 5, 32, he comments on this same principle. You might say, well, why, why are you causing you know, someone to commit adultery if you divorce them and adultery has not been committed? That doesn't make sense. Why is it causing... Because it says if they have to look for another and they get involved in another relationship, 
they were married in the eyes of God, but their divorce was in the eyes of man, then it pushes them into a relationship that God had not prepared or planned for. The court has dissolved something, not God, not unless the other has already violated the marriage covenant through sexual immorality or adultery. There's a permanence expected with marriage. God's desire from the beginning was that it be a permanent thing. One man, one woman for a lifetime. So, Tina gave me this ring on our wedding day. And the ring, as you've heard at most weddings, the the precious metal, the gold, is a picture of the purity. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. But it's also a picture, a circle, a picture of eternity. It just continues. Reminding us that the marriage is to be unbroken this side of heaven. We're to keep our vows. We're to stick together through thick and thin. When we think about it being a, a picture of God's covenant love, think about the way Jesus loves us. You think about Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, where He's persuaded uh, that neither height nor depth, nor, nor angels, principalities, powers, nor things past, things present, things nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's covenant love for us in Christ says nothing is going to separate us. And we need men who have the same kind of determination who will say to their wives, baby, I'm determined nothing is going to come between me and you. Nothing is going to separate us from the love that we have for one another. All hell may come against our marriage. And by the way, all hell will come against your marriage because the devil wants to see it dissolved. But all of heaven's resources are at your disposal. And we have to make the choice if we're going to pull on those resources, the Word of God and the God of the Word, the Spirit of God to guide us to protect the permanency of marriage that's expected. He does give this situation of adultery and abandonment. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which kind of spells that out in all the various situations that we pray and hope that no one will ever have to go through. But if you've been through that and you say, you know, I've already remarried. The first one's beyond reconciliation. They've remarried or I've remarried or both of us remarried. Then you need to, by the grace of God, start right now and say, this one we're going to do God's way. This one's going to last till death do us part, by the grace of God, by the power of God. Remember the picture. Determine that it's going to be permanent. And finally, I want you to see the prerogative of marriage that's extended. The prerogative of marriage that's extended. You might say, well then, man, like the Pharisees, who, who wants to get married? <laughs> that sounds tough. Well, his disciples said this in verse 10, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And Jesus, in essence, says, you know what? You don't have to get married. Marriage is such a big deal. In fact, don't rush into it. Don't allow singleness to be considered sinfulness. Now, verse 11, Jesus says, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it is given to. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. And what he's saying is basically, you don't have to 
get married. That, that's not something you have to do. And, and there are reasons to celebrate singleness and not despise it. If you summarize this in the context of the rest of the New Testament, you see that that singleness could be a characteristic that you're born with. Or someone just has the gift from God for celibacy. And they can live single, and he says, that's not a big deal. The problem we have today is, and it breaks my heart, that when a young man gets into to high school and into college and he's not interested in dating, you have some idiots that look at him and say, well, then you must be gay. Maybe they've been given a gift of God so that they can be used by Him and should not be pushed into some kind of other perversion because they have the gift of celibacy. But it may not be a characteristic they were born with. It could be a cross. He says it was forced on some. And, and there are some people in the world today, they are single. They don't desire to be single. They don't want to be single. But for some reason, God has not brought the right one into their life and they don't understand why. It is a cross to bear. And it can be carried. It may not be desired, but that cross can be carried by the grace of God. Sometimes singleness is not the characteristic or a cross. It's a consequence from choices that they've made in their life. Maybe choices from which they need to repent and experience God's grace so that God can bring the right one into their life in His timing. Sometimes singleness is a calling for the kingdom. A calling for the kingdom. He said some choose to be this way because of the kingdom. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I mentioned a moment ago, he said there are some people that are single because they know that they're not going to be tied down. They can go literally all over the world whenever they get ready to impact the world for the gospel of Christ, missions, evangelism, you name it. They can be down at the church serving all the time, whatever the case may be. He says... In 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34, if that's the case, don't feel like you've got to look for somebody. Don't feel like you've always got to be finding that person. But if you find someone, he said it's better to marry than to burn. Don't be consumed with lust. But when it's time, God brings that person into your life, then get married. Know what love is. Know that there's a purpose behind it all and that, that love is not a feeling. One of the biggest problems with teenagers today and, 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 and young people, college students, is, is they wait till they fall in love. And I want to say, if you fail, who tripped you? Love isn't a feeling. The feeling is infatuation. And it's good to be infatuated if you truly love, but you can be infatuated and not be in love. Infatuation is a feeling. Love is a choice. Love is an action. Love is patient. Love is kind. <laughs> and so don't be mistaken by feet. Well, I don't feel in love. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is a choice to be Christ-like and to care more about the other person. Teenage girls get so excited. Well, you know, he wrote a letter and said, I listen, I told Tina I loved her. And, and, and listen, I, I, I dated along the way and, and went to college, dated, seminary dated, and and, and, and I didn't use that word love. I just didn't use the word love. I knew I would tell her I loved her when I was ready to put a ring on her finger. Because I didn't want to use that word flippantly. And teenage girls get so excited today, well, he said he loves me. I'm like, that rascal loves deer hunting. It don't make the deer feel better. He loves Big Macs. That doesn't make the, the food safe. 
He's going to devour everything in the house. Love to Him means you make me feel good. You're good at eye candy on my shoulder. Don't use that word flippantly. Use it when you're ready to put a ring on somebody's finger. So adults and teens get distracted in their singleness because of premature commitments and not knowing what love is. Think about Song of Solomon chapter 8 and verse 4. He says, don't awaken romantic love before it pleases. Don't rush into this. And parents, don't rush your kids into this. Marriage is a big deal. Marriage is a, don't, don't say to your fourth grader, well, don't you have a boyfriend or girlfriend? Man, praise God they don't yet. I can show you statistic after statistic. The earlier they start the process of romance in their life, the less likely they are to make it to the altar as, as pure vessels before God. Don't celebrate that stuff so early in their life that they feel pressured, I've got to have a boyfriend or I've got to have a girlfriend. Man, thank God I'm not dealing with that yet as a parent. And I pray that it continues for a while. Now, if some of you guys, you know, if there's some teenage boys that want to talk to me about my daughter, we'll have that talk. I've got a baseball bat and a gun I can just kind of have laying around. I'm not ready to go there yet. We push our parents. You know, when your wife says, man, I can't believe what they put on Facebook. And I'm like, golly, do their parents know that? Their parents put it on there. <laughs> like, oh, I can't tell Ben to get on to the youth until I talk to the parents. Don't push them into that. Let them have a love for Jesus Christ that is unhindered before God brings that right one into their life. Young people and single people, adult singles. There are adults who are single or single again in their 40s or 50s and they say, well, I'm old enough now. This don't apply to me anymore. That couldn't be farther from the truth. The conjugal relationship is between a husband and a wife no matter how old you are. Because it's a little picture of the big picture of God's covenant, love. The importance of this ring should never be debased or devalued. But when it's time, <laughs> when it's time, the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And marriage is a wonderful thing. And Tina, I am thankful to God that you and I have been able to be faithful through the good times, through the bad times, we've been able to just be broken together. And I pray that others, I pray that our children, others here can get just a taste of what a royal wedding, a royal marriage is all about. Would you bow your heads with me as we close?